Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. Welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, Episode 8, Part 1, Rapid Testing with Dr. Michael Minner. COVID-19 is here to stay, but we can live with it safely if we implement a 360-degree pandemic control strategy. If you scroll down to the bottom of the podcast section of the Kajala Medical website, you can see my diagram about the 360-degree solution to pandemic control. If we implement each of these sections to varying degrees, we can reduce our risk of infection from this coronavirus. In this episode, we remain in the testing strategy phase, and this week, Dr. Minner talks about how rapid antigen testing can be used to screen contagious people early, which, if they are then quarantined, prevents them from spreading SARS-CoV-2 to uninfected people. A video version of this episode will be available shortly on our YouTube channel. Today, I'd like to introduce you all to Dr. Michael Minner, MD, PhD, Chief Science Officer of eMed, a biotechnology software company providing virtual authentications of at-home tests. Dr. Minner joined eMed in 2022 from Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in the USA, where he was Associate Professor of Epidemiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases, as well as a core faculty member of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, or CDCC. Dr. Minner earned his PhD and MD from Emory University and performed postdoctoral research at Princeton University and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Minner's research involves the development of new technologies using mathematical and epidemiological models to understand the pathogenesis of vaccine-preventable diseases, with a specific focus on measles infections and vaccines. His research also explored more fundamental questions of immunity. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Minner has been a leading voice and proponent of rapid testing as a major public health screening tool for detecting contagious people early and quickly. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Michael, how did you get into rapid testing? Well, it's uh, a great question. So I'm, I am an epidemiologist and an immunologist first and foremost. I'm also a physician where I, uh, where prior to the pandemic and during the pandemic, uh, I was the associate medical director of molecular virology diagnostics at one of Harvard's main teaching hospitals called Brigham and Women's Hospital. And uh, at the beginning, when COVID-19 started to circulate and, and SARS-CoV-2 virus started to circulate in China, uh, my team at the Harvard School of Public Health, a group of epidemiologists, we were working on monitoring and really trying to evaluate, was this virus going to become a pandemic? Was it, How quickly was it spreading? Where was it going? And so we started researching the virus very early in January of 2020. 
Uh, and wearing that epidemiology hat, I realized very early on that we were going to, I mean, it was very uh, essentially incontrovertible that we were going to have a pandemic and the virus is going to spread in the United States. So then I went back to the hospital uh, where I had my sort of secondary appointment at Harvard and said, and, and pleaded really with the hospital administration to give me the resources to build COVID PCR testing capacity uh, for our patients. Uh, I had a lot of resistance uh, early on, a lot of comments like, oh, why would we need a COVID test? Uh, this is a virus that's in China and you know it's not in the United States. What are you talking about? And, uh, and ultimately I, I succeeded in, in securing resources, but it took about a month of, of really arguing with the hospital administration. And, uh, and through that experience, I realized pretty quickly that we were not going to have enough capacity for what we really needed. So I went to the Broad Institute, which is a, a major uh, biotech engineering uh, institute that is a combination between Harvard and MIT. Uh, and they've run a lot of the big sequencing programs since the early 2000s for, for sequencing the human genome. And they have a, a massively sort of efficient uh, biological core uh, for sequencing. So I approached them and I'm also an, an adjunct faculty at the Broad. Uh, so I said, hey, we're going to need more COVID testing. Can we use your sequencing facility to start doing PCR testing? And myself and another physician uh, tried to set that up early. And actually, that was very successful. But even that, and we've run, you know, on any given day, the Broad now runs 150 or 200,000 PCR tests a day at their lab. So it's massively efficient. But even working with one of the most efficient laboratory engineering groups in the world, it became very apparent very quickly to me that even that wasn't going to be enough testing, that the demand was going to so overwhelm the supply that the speed required for testing for the purposes of identifying people quickly enough so that they don't go and spread was going to demand a very fast test. So I started looking at rapid tests and different antigen, lateral flow antigen test companies that were, that were developing these tests and all of them came back and said, you know, this is a great idea, but you know, we're not gonna get the sensitivity we need to match molecular testing. So how, so, you know, our, this just isn't gonna really work out. And that really set me off on this path of exploring the question, do we really need the type of high, high sensitivity testing that molecular diagnostics PCR provides if, if we could have very fast and massively accessible tests that maybe lack a little bit of sensitivity, but are much quicker turnaround times. And that set off this whole cascade of research in my laboratory with a number of my PhD students and postdocs, uh, uh, ultimately to develop some of the core theory underlying why a rapid antigen test is actually not just sufficient, but a better test uh, for pandemic response than laboratory-based. PCR diagnostics. So that's kind of the, the sequence of how I got into this territory. Thank God we've got wonderful minds like you on the planet, is all I can say. <laughs> um, so um, I first came to hear about managing the COVID pandemic with rapid testing through an interview that Dr. Michael Minner did for This Week in Virology or TWIV back in July 2020. Michael brought a completely different perspective to pandemic management through testing that made so much sense to me and others. For the first time, there appeared to be a breakthrough path forward to pandemic management with the implementation of low cost rapid antigen testing as a screening tool, 
even before the onset of vaccines. And on a personal note, I would say your interview was one of the most influential presentations of my medical career. This led on to me influencing as many people as I could about the benefits of rapid testing and joining a widespread campaign to get rapid testing authorised in Canada. So let's get started with the questions. Broadly speaking, there are two types of COVID tests. Those that measure a new or acute infection, such as the laboratory PCR or rapid antigen tests, and those that measure a previous infection, likely some time ago, by looking at your antibodies or T cells. Some you get a fairly immediate result with, Others, it takes hours or in some cases, days. In this interview, we are going to focus on rapid testing of a new or acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. So at present, there are two types of tests available that detect a new or acute SARS-CoV-2 infection, a molecular test or an antigen test. Michael, can you please explain the difference between the two and why the distinction is important? Absolutely. So a... Rapid antigen test and a PCR test are both looking for the virus, but do so in different ways. A PCR test is using a technology that looks for the genetic code of the virus, the RNA that makes the blueprint for the virus. And every virus has RNA inside of it. So it makes sense to use that as something we go and look for. And the nice thing about that is when you're looking for the genetic code, the RNA, or in humans, it would be the DNA usually, uh, we can use PCR. And the reason PCR is so critical and so useful is that even if you only have a single molecule, PCR has this, what we call an amplification step, and it literally like zooms in or amplifies the signal. So if there's just one molecule, the machine can't see one molecule right off the bat, but it goes through what we call cycles of replication or amplification. So it takes that one molecule and if it finds it, it has a little probe that goes and seeks out the exact part of the RNA that, it, that we kind of program it to seek out. And it, that would be a part of the, of the virus's RNA. That's very specific to that virus. So you get very few false positives. And if there's even just a single molecule, it will amplify that one into two molecules and then four molecules and then eight molecules and each cycle it doubles. And what that does is eventually you'll have enough molecules through that doubling process that the machine can actually say, aha, there is a signal here. Yes, there was some starting material from the COVID RNA, SARS-CoV-2 RNA. So that's a really powerful tool when you're asking the question, is my patient infected with this virus or have they had an infection in the recent weeks uh, because the RNA lasts? So even the smallest amount that's of remnant RNA will still be there, which could help a, a physician discern, was my patient's symptoms last week, were those due to COVID? Now, on the other hand, we have antigen tests or rapid antigen tests, and these are much, uh, these are very powerful tools because of the speed. Now, where they differ is there's no amplification step. You don't multi, you don't find a protein and multiply it into two and four. It's what you see is what you get. And so you have to, so they'll only be positive if there's enough virus there for the test to detect without any sort of multiplication or amplification. The virus will only turn that test positive if there's enough virus there 
to actually for the person to see with the, with sort of the reagents that are on that test. And why that's important is that these tests are looking for the actual protein of the virus, not the genetic code. So if the protein is there and it's in its configured state so that the test can actually detect it, it means that you have live replicating virus. You're currently infectious. You're, you have actual replicating virus that could potentially infect somebody else. So it's an active infection that it's generally finding, whereas PCR, you don't know if it's necessarily active or if it's two weeks old. Eventually your body clears all of that RNA, but not immediately. And so these rapid antigen tests, they're fast, which makes them exceedingly important and useful for pandemic response. They're accessible. You can have them in your cupboard at your home. And they are specific to the question most of us want to ask, which is, am I infectious now? Do I need to isolate? Am I a risk to other people around me? And that's why most of us test. And that's really what these rapid antigen tests are looking for. Excellent answer. Thank you. As um, Michael has said, rapid tests can be molecular or antigen tests. The molecular tests tend to be an expensive lab in a box type test with cartridges. The rapid antigen tests can be the lab in the box, handheld devices or paper-based tests. In this interview, we're going to focus in on the use of rapid antigen tests to detect COVID-19. Laboratory-based PCR tests are often called the gold standard tests. Rapid antigen tests often get a bad press and are labelled less accurate. It appears to me that different types of tests play different roles at potentially different times in the virus cycle. Michael, can you please explain the roles that PCR and antigen tests play in the detection of SARS-CoV-2? Absolutely. Well, that might help if I pull up my uh, screen here and I will do this. All right. Brilliant. So you can see this? Yes. Okay. So PCR and antigen tests can find the virus at different amounts of virus and for different durations of time. So for when, whenever anyone gets exposed to the virus, no test will be positive right away. And this is a period of time that we call the incubation period when the virus is literally incubating inside of people. It's just kind of situating itself in the cells and it's figuring out, is this gonna be a host that kind of kills me off before I even have a chance to grow? Or is this gonna be a host that I can actually grow in and start replicating? And if it starts replicating and it really takes off, eventually it will pass what we call the threshold of detection or the lower limit of detection for PCR. And this, in this particular graph that I've, this is kind of a depiction, it's not for every individual, it might be a little bit different, but the, the limit of detection for PCR might be around a thousand viral copies. And that's what I'm really showing uh, right here at day zero. That might be the first day that somebody is detectable by PCR. And then the antigen test might not catch somebody until the virus grows to a hundred thousand copies or maybe even a million copies. So that sounds like a big difference, a thousand versus a million. But what's really important and what is often lost when we think about limits of detection and sensitivity of a test is what does it really mean, not from a molecular number, but from a time perspective. And this is really important in pandemic responses time. And it's almost never considered when we think about the metrics of a test. Mm. And the reason is, 
If you look here at this graph, people will go from the limit of detection of a PCR test to hitting the limit of detection of a rapid antigen test that might be a, a hundred or a thousand times, uh, require a hundred or a thousand times more virus, but that they might pass that threshold within just a day or hours from passing the limit of detection of the PCR. And that's because the virus at this point is growing so fast. It's exponentially replicating, it's doubling. And so it doesn't take long for it for with exponential replication for something to go from a thousand to a hundred thousand or a million. So within a day or, or so you end up passing both thresholds. So you, you may worry if you're using a rapid antigen test that you're not getting high enough sensitivity, but the chances of even sticking the swab in your nose in between those two limits of detection is a very short window of time, let's say 15 hours or 24 hours. And then you're up here and both tests will be positive. At that point, both tests will be positive and 99% of all the virus somebody has in their whole infection uh, is, gonna be, is going to exist in just a two to four day period of time. And that's when the virus is at its peak. That's when you're most infectious. An antigen test and a PCR test will both detect you at that period of time. A difference being a PCR test, if it has to go out to a lab, you won't get the result back for a day or two or five, depending on what lab you're using. So if, you're, if you have to wait three days to get the result back, then by the time you get the result, you're already past your peak infectivity. And so an antigen test, it will turn positive during this period of time, but give you a result back in 10 minutes. So it's extremely important that if you're trying to find the most infectious people and stop them from spreading, that results are given back quickly and both of them will do that. At that point, once you hit peak infectivity or peak viral load, your body necessarily has to start clearing the virus. The human body can't sustain a billion or a trillion viral particles per mil for more than you know, a single replication cycle before your immune system has to really start battling it back down or you end up in the hospital. Mm. And so our immune systems generally battle it back down. And at that point, once our immune system uh, it falls, it battles the virus back down enough, we go below the limit of detection again for the rapid antigen test. And at that point, you're no longer infectious. Your, your immune system has cleared 99.9% .9 of all the virus that was in your body at peak transmissibility, but your PCR test is still positive because even if you only have a thousand or 10,000 viral particles, your antigen test might not be able to detect it, but the PCR test surely will. And it takes a long time for the PCR then to completely go negative because you just had this massive battle take place in your, in your nose and in your throat where you had literally trillions of viral particles get beat down by your immune system. And then you're using a technology that can detect as little as one viral particle or one piece of RNA. So for, to get your body to clear from a trillion to zero takes a really long time. For some people it takes weeks or even months. So the PCR will stay positive from day 10 in this picture all the way to day 25 or 35. And some people even to like day 80 the PCR will keep being positive. So it's a really good test if you're a forensics detective or a physician who's trying to go back in after the crime has been committed to say, what caused these symptoms? What was the crime that was committed here? Oh, there was a COVID infection. Doctors might want that to know what caused my patient's symptoms two weeks ago. But if you're actively trying to stop spread, 
you really want to focus in on the peak viral transmissible time. And PCR is just a little bit too sensitive to really be specific for that question because it stays positive for so long. So each of these tests have their merits, uh, but one of them is better than the other for detecting currently infectious people in a time frame that's actually uh, useful for stopping them from spreading to others. Thank you. Yeah, um, my record for hearing um, positive PCR detection was an athlete who who tested positive for six months. <laughs> it it absolutely happens, and it was one of I remember in February of 2020, maybe it was early March. I was asked to uh, be the peer reviewer on a research paper from China that was showing people staying positive on PCR for 80 days, wow. and that's actually what led the CDC originally to say, look. If you're positive on a on with COVID, don't use a PCR test again for three months because it, you might keep being positive from the same old infection, even though you're no longer infectious. So there has, for the entire duration of this pandemic, this has been known. It unfortunately we've had a miscommunication between what we knew and the CDC was saying, don't use a PCR test; they're not specific to the infectious period. But then, unfortunately there was a lot of misinformation and miscommunication and misunderstanding about when we use a PCR test as the gold standard for a test meant to detect the transmissible window. A lot of people say, oh, these tests for the transmissible window are not sensitive enough. But it's not that they weren't sensitive enough to detect that. It was that the PCR was not specific enough to only be positive in that period of time we care about. And it has led to massive confusion on a global level, mm. literally across mm. the globe, about, well, are antigen tests good enough for what we need them for? And uh, and I would argue absolutely, they, they certainly are. Yeah, and we're going to explore that. So with regards to assessing the accuracy of any test, in this case, a test for COVID, the scientific terms sensitivity and specificity are often quoted. Could you please explain what these terms mean for our non-scientific audience and why are they relevant? Absolutely. So the specificity is asking essentially how likely if I'm not infected, am I, how, how many times do I have to test myself with a test before I get a false positive? So if you have a, a very specific test, that means you'll only be positive. Your test will only read positive when you're actually positive. If you have a low specificity test, then let's say you have a test that's only 90% specific. That would be very poor. That would mean that if you were to test yourself 100 times and you're not infected, that 10 of those tests would actually falsely turn positive. So specificity is something very important to keep very, very high, like 99.5%, 99.9% specific. You don't really want a test that's going to be falsely positive more than say one in a thousand or one in a few thousand tests. Sensitivity is if I'm infected, how likely is it that this test will actually detect that I am in fact infected? And the question there is we have to be asking, well, sensitivity for what? Is it sensitivity for having any viral RNA in your body or is it sensitivity for being infectious? These are different states. So we always have to define what is my test sensitive to detect? Is it any RNA? Do I have any remnants at all? Or is it sensitivity to detect an ongoing active infection? 
I like to think about sensitivity in this regard when I put it in an analogy of uh, detectives and security guards at the scene of a crime. A, a test that we need in a pandemic, for example, for a sensitive test is one that you could liken it to uh, a, a, a security camera or a security guard. And you ask the question, if there's a crime going on over here, how likely is it that my security camera is going to you know, turn on bright red flashing lights and say, crime, 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 you know, and you want that to be, you want it to go on when the crime is actually happening and you want it to go on as much as possible when the crime's happening. So if you have a hundred crimes, you ideally want it to go on a hundred times that there's somebody breaks in. But what you don't want is you don't want it to start flashing red two weeks after that crime took place. You know, we would think that that was a glitch in the system. And that's kind of like what PCR does. It stays, it keeps turning on. So it's very, very sensitive to detect a crime, whether it was happening now or two weeks ago. So that can be good for some uses, like a forensics detective going in and having a very sensitive test to say, to pick up even just a hair from the crime scene and say, aha, yes, there was a crime that occurred here. Uh, and so sensitivity is how likely are you to detect the thing that you're looking for what I think has been totally lacking in this pandemic is a proper definition from physicians and public health officials and the FDA and others to describe what it is that we are trying to be sensitive to detect. Mm. And, it, and there's not a one size fits all issue. And we actually published a paper in Science saying to, for COVID-19 testing, one size does not fit all. Because what you're looking for, what you want to be sensitive for changes depending on what your goals of testing uh, actually are. Yeah, no, I read that paper and I'll share it in the case notes, a link to it. When reading studies that try to assess the validity of rapid antigen tests, there seems to be a range of sensitivities quoted in different studies, often for the same tests in different scenarios. The antigen tests are often compared to PCR tests and found to be not as sensitive. Can you please explain why this is happening? Absolutely. So I will share uh, another slide. So why does this happen? Um, if you have an antigen test or a PCR test, an antigen test I have on this slide, I'm showing a picture of somebody going through the whole course of infection from getting exposed to the virus replicating to very high numbers to the immune system, causing that viral replication to diminish and then to essentially being cleared, but somebody staying PCR positive. Now, if you are comparing an antigen test to, to PCR, and you don't know where the person is in their course of infection, then you're actually more likely to be positive on PCR after you've been infectious. So you actually spend more time being PCR positive when you're no longer infectious. Uh, and you spend a fraction of your time being PCR positive, actually spreading to other people. Now, an antigen test is very specific for the period of time when you're spreading to other people. So I'm showing when people are positive down here on antigen test, it's maybe for about five days. But when somebody's positive on PCR, it's maybe for about 20 days or more. And so the problem is you're, you're only infectious for about five days. And during those five days, you're actually antigen test positive. But if you don't have symptoms, for example, 
let's say you have no symptoms, you don't know where somebody is in this whole timeline when you take that swab from them. So it's actually just very, very likely that you're going to collect a sample from somebody who's PCR positive, but not infectious. And then if you go and collect an antigen test from that same person, you're going to get a discordant result. It's going to say antigen test negative, PCR test positive. And you're going, and so the way that researchers often look at this, unfortunately, or physicians have been saying, well, that's, that means that the antigen test is failing because the PCR is positive and the antigen test is negative. But this is a big problem with not defining what it is, is our target for detection. Because just based on this graph alone, I think you can see that you actually don't want to have somebody start isolating at day 16 into their infection just because they're PCR positive. They have already completely cleared their virus from their body in terms of infectious levels of virus. You don't need to isolate anymore if you've just happened to stick the swab in your nose at day 16. To me, that would actually be a failure of the testing program if it told you you're positive and you had to go and isolate because of that. And so the real issue with what we've seen in so many scientific publications and the way that regulatory agencies across the world evaluate these tests, especially in America, but also in Canada and many other countries, is that they keep insisting that an antigen test for one thing gets compared to a PCR for another thing. I liken it to the same reason we don't ever compare an X-ray to an MRI. An MRI is expensive. It takes a lot of time to perform. You have to schedule it. You're not generally going to use it in the emergency room, but it's going to find even the smallest little stress fracture. But if you're looking for somebody who has a completely broken femur, you just need an X-ray. You don't need the power of an MRI. And so we don't compare X-rays to MRIs and, and say that they have to live up to the sensitivity of an MRI because we understand they have different uses. And unfortunately in this pandemic, we have yet to fully recognize that the two tests have very different uses and very different qualities. And we should not be comparing an antigen test to a PCR because they're literally looking for different molecules that have very different half-lives in the body. An antigen test is looking for molecules that disappear after five days. A PCR test is looking for molecules that disappear after 25 days. Very different uses. What are the most important characteristics required for a test in order to stop the spread of infection during a pandemic, i.e. to manage transmission of infection? Well, that's a great question. So normally in medicine, the characteristics of a test we usually care about our sensitivity and specificity. The characteristics that are generally not even considered, especially at sort of a medical regulatory um, evaluation, are speed and access. And what we've shown is actually when your goal is to limit spread, access becomes absolutely essential. In fact, speed and access to the test are much, much more important than the molecular sensitivity for all the reasons we just discussed where you don't need all of the amazing sensitivity of PCR. You just need to test that will detect a million viral particles or more uh, for detecting somebody is infectious. So uh, the issue is that if you had a very fast, very accessible PCR test, then great, you know, use it if you wanna use it. You can be aware of, you know, you, you'd, you'd have to be aware that you might stay positive for a very long time. 
But the fact of the matter is that PCR is not generally fast and not generally accept, uh, accessible. Uh, we want a test that can live in people's homes. So at the moment you think, maybe I was exposed, maybe I have symptoms that might be COVID, you can pull out the test without having a big barrier to entry and you can get an immediate result. And immediacy is just so critical. If your test takes two days to return, then it's not going to be good enough to stop spread. And I have a slide here that I'll show you that I think is very relevant to this question. And um, so I have a slide here that's very relevant to this question. Uh, if, if you're charged with limiting spread in a business, you can choose a test that's 100% sensitive, massively sensitive. It's gonna catch every single person that's ever been infected, but it takes two days to get a result. Or you can choose an 80% sensitive rapid test, which would be a very poor performing rapid test, uh, but it has a result in 15 minutes. Which test do you want to use to help limit spread in your workplace? And the answer is actually very straightforward. Most people, without thinking about speed, would say, I want the 100% sensitive test. I don't want anyone who's positive to not be detected as positive. But actually, if you look at the reality from more of an epidemiological lens, speed becomes a much more critical factor. And what I'm showing here in this sort of busy slide, but I'll break it down, there's the identical scenarios on the top of the slide and the bottom of the slide. But on the top, you're using a PCR test that's 100% sensitive. And on the bottom, you're using a rapid test that is 80% sensitive. This test used on the top takes two days to return. The test used on the bottom takes minutes. So in the top scenario, you have five infectious people. In both scenarios, you have five infectious people walking into a workplace. And I have them in black and boxed in the, the color of the box represents how much viral load they might have. Uh, so all five of those are infectious. All five of them get a PCR test, but then they don't get a result back for two days. So they spend two days walking around work, not knowing that they are spreading the virus because they're waiting for their PCR result to return. And so with this scenario, you have collectively five infectious individuals who walk around for two full days before finding out that they're positive. All of them find out that they're positive at the end of the day, at the end of two days, but it took 10 person days of walking around positive and spreading to other people in the workplace before they found out. So that's 10 person days of infectivity in the workplace before they get discovered. And that causes them to infect numerous new people and send 20 odd people to quarantine or more. Now on the bottom, we have the exact same five people walk into a workplace, but they have a 15 minute turnaround time on their antigen test, the rapid test, but it's only 80% sensitive. And so the person it's probably gonna miss, so it catches four of the people immediately. And one person, 20% of five, one person ends up getting through without detection. That person is probably very low amount of viral load in the first place. And so they were, so they probably were not highly, highly infectious, but they were able to, they squeaked by, but ultimately they get caught. But the important thing was four of them were caught immediately. So eventually at the end of the day, you have two person days walking around infectious. 
So the 80% rapid test leads to only two person days of infectivity in the workplace versus 10. So it's the fast test, regardless of its sensitivity, that ends up becoming much more critical to limiting spread. And in fact, you'd have to have an abysmally bad rapid test to be as bad as a PCR test that takes two days to return. Which, but, but speed is just generally not really considered in our metrics at the CDC and, and at the FDA. And I think it's been a big failure of, of scientists and sort of the medical industry to not recognize how important speed is when we think about the qualities of a test. Yeah, it's been really frustrating having understood what you said a very long time ago. It's a very important aspect of pandemic management that is omitted from most public health information is the topic of viral load and the role viral load plays in the virus cycle. By way of example for our audience, let's compare two scenarios. Example one, a person infected with the coronavirus but not contagious. And example two, a person infected and contagious with the ability to transmit or spread the virus to others. This is a major aspect of testing that you have just provided an excellent medical and scientific information slide about. And it's been very confusing and contradicting for non-medical people. So can you please talk about these two examples in the context of viral load and how rapid antigen tests work in comparison to PCR tests within this framework? So what I'm getting at, Michael, is CT values really ultimately. Absolutely. And this is one of the most um, misunderstood aspects of this pandemic, I think, especially by physicians, oddly. And... um, it's, there's some history there of why physicians have had such trouble thinking about viral load. Doctors aren't generally trained to think about transmission. Now, when the only time we normally think about CT values are the number of cycles it takes for PCR to turn positive. So the more cycles it takes for PCR to turn positive means the more times you had to amplify the starting amount of RNA, which means the lower the viral load was at the beginning. Normally, when we're thinking about CT values in viral diagnostics, we're usually thinking about HIV. And with HIV, it's kind of a binary question oftentimes for diagnostics. Are you HIV positive or negative? And so it doesn't matter if you even have one molecule, the infectious disease physician diagnoses you as having HIV. And, uh, and of course, if you have a lot of molecules, you might really be even sicker, but the point is you're HIV positive either way. But we actually do think about, even in the HIV world, we say that, yes, somebody might have HIV. We know that they probably have molecules of of, uh, HIV inside them, but if they are undetectable or at such a low level, we know that they don't transmit. So this idea of transmissibility has started to enter into the medical thinking. But with regard to COVID, the issue is really, do we need all of the sensitivity? Do we need to be detecting somebody who has a very low viral load? or who has a very high CT count. CT counts, a very high CT count, say 38 or 40, implies a very, very low viral load. They're inversely uh, correlated. And so the fact is we don't need to find people with very, very low viral loads if our interest is to detect people who are going to infect others. And it turns out that different tests do better at different things. So A PCR test will detect you as positive across the whole gamut of viral loads. 
an antigen, a rapid test will only detect you when you're at a high viral load. And that actually impacts the sensitivity. So the sensitivity of a test is, is absolutely related to the amount of virus that you're trying to detect. So I'll share a graph that I made um, a, a, quite a while ago. And this is from, uh, this is from a, a manuscript from Tim Keto in the UK who looked at seven different uh, rapid tests and asked what is the sensitivity of each of these tests to detect virus at different amounts of viral load. And different amounts of viral load indicate that you have different levels of infectivity to others. And so he found was that at, at, for all seven of these tests, they were all able to perform with pretty much 100% sensitivity when the viral load was the highest, meaning over 10 million copies, or even moderately high, meaning one to 10 million copies, all of the tests still had 100% sensitivity. And it wasn't until you got to pretty moderate or low viral load that the tests start to drop in sensitivity. So 100,000 to 1 million, you're still moderately infectious, but not highly infectious. And then the, the tests start to get to 90, 90 to 95% sensitivity. And as you drop below 100,000 viral load, you start to no longer be infectious. You just aren't infectious. PCR will still keep being positive, but you're, you're not likely to be infectious. And so finding, uh, detecting you as positive at that period of time is much less important than detecting you as positive when you have a very high viral load. If your goal is to stop somebody from transmitting. So on average, a test that is across all of the viral loads that might happen in a population at any given time, you might have a test that's only 50% sensitive versus PCR. But if you look at what are the viral loads we actually care about, that very same test might be 97 or 95% sensitive. So the sensitivity is absolutely essentially, uh, it's, it's essential to look at sensitivity stratified by what you care to ask, which is, am I infectious or do I have any virus? And we see that the sensitivities differ markedly. What has happened in the medical literature and that has caused so much confusion is most papers discuss just what is the sensitivity of the antigen test against any viral load? And that's what you see here in this white bar in the middle which is any RNA detection, that test might only be 50 or 40% sensitive, sometimes even only 30% sensitive. So people think, oh, what an abysmally bad test. But it's because you're looking, you're starting to look for uh, viral loads that are not relevant anymore. So if you really key in just on the high viral load people, then you see, oh, wow, that same test does very, very well. And I was being distracted by it not catching people who I no longer care about because they're no longer infectious. Now, an important piece of this is that a lot of people will say, what, what if that low viral load was the virus on the way up? And that's actually something we care about. You wanna actually detect somebody very early. So if their viral load is only a thousand, but they're on their way up and they're about to hit a million the next day, then that's critical to know. The problem is uh, if you, you again have to take time into account. So I showed this uh, other slide here, the time frame in between that, it's just very unlikely that you're actually gonna swab somebody in that short duration of time when you're in between the two uh, sensitivities. So it actually is much less relevant 
And most of the time that you see PCR being very low viral load and antigen tests being negative is after the infectivity is done. And so that's why we really have to be paying attention to virus load when we ask what is the sensitivity, sensitivity of the test. And I've advocated very strongly to the FDA and others, unfortunately to a fairly, you know, have made only moderate headway over the two years, um, is that we should always stratify sensitivity by virus load. And that is what would actually give us a better understanding of how good is this test? Because you could take an abysmally bad test and if you only detect people when they have more than a billion viral particles, you could actually make the test look like it's 100% sensitive if you only recruit people into your study who have a billion viral particles or more. So you could actually make a really bad test look very good. Or if you only recruit people who are on day 10 to 20 of their infectiousness or of their infection, you could make a very good antigen test look like it has 20% sensitivity. So it really depends on where people are in their course of infection. And we should know that and think about viral load when we think about sensitivity of a test. Yeah, so to, to really clarify it for the audience, high viral load means that you're infectious and contagious. A CT value is a logarithmic measurement that which makes it inversely proportional to viral load. So a low T CT value means that you have loads of virus in you and you're really contagious. And a high CT value, say above 30 or 40, means that you have very little contagious virus in you and probably won't spread it. And, and my contention is, is that we have PCR machines that can give a CT value. So when people get their, uh, their test for P, uh, from a PCR, really they should be given a CT value to say where they are in infectivity. What do you feel about that? I 100% agree. It was actually a paper that I published in April of 2020, I believe, uh, in, I think it was clinical infectious diseases. Um, uh, it was one of the earlier papers on PCR testing in this pandemic. And I, at that time, you know, over two, two years ago now, I was advocating for using the CT value. If we're going to ever tell somebody they're PCR positive, give them the CT value. Because what was happening was we had all these patients in the hospital that were positive and they were staying in isolation wards for two months because they kept being PCR positive. And I kept saying, you know, we should be looking at the CT value. And if somebody has a CT value on one day of 38 and on the next day of 38, then, they, then they're, they're done with their infection. They're no longer infectious. Their body just hasn't finished clearing that last little bit of RNA. But if on the first day of hospitalization, they have a CT value of 38, and on the second day, they have a CT value of 20, then in that 24-hour period of time, they, they massively expanded their viral load. They definitely need to go into isolation. And so, or if you just take one PCR CT value and it is a 17 and the first time you take it, you know that they're currently infectious. They have a very high viral load. So the use of the PCR, if you're going to use such a profoundly sensitive test that can scale over many orders of magnitude, then it is so critical for the physician or public health expert to know well, where am I in the course or where is my patient in the course of this infection? Are they massively infectious and spreading the virus and have a billion viral particles in their nose right now? Or do they have almost no viral particles and they're probably past their infection? And the CT value gives you that information. 
I'll show an interesting slide that I think is just really illustrative of this concept. What we normally show for CT values is what I show on the top here. Actually, let me, let me rewind here. So I'll show a slide uh, to put this all into context. What we normally show for CT values is on the top here. This is what we normally see for viral loads in a person. They go from sort of undetectable levels of virus. And then once they pass maybe a hundred viral copies per milliliter, that might be in some PCR instruments, a CT value of 40, they then go up really quick. Maybe they get to a CT value of 18 and then they drop down again and finally become undetectable after three weeks or four weeks. So this viral load makes it look like, you know, you should probably be detecting people out to 20 days, for example. But if we actually look at what do these CT values actually mean? And like you said, CT values are logarithmic. They actually are on a log scale. And so if we take this, uh, this same viral load curve that I'm showing, and this is sort of the, this is a depiction of what somebody's virus might do inside their body since infection. So they go from zero, they go to really high viral load and back down again to undetectable. If we put this on a linear scale, how we normally think about virus load as, an in, as any individual might think about virus load, the same graph, is, these two graphs are identical. They're just changing the scale on the y-axis to one is logarithmic, which accentuates low viral numbers. And on the bottom, it's how we actually think of like how much virus is actually existing. And so what we can see is almost all of the virus that somebody has in their body occurs in a very short amount of time. 99 plus percent of all of the virus you have occurs from like on this particular person, day four to day seven. You know, and after day seven, they have pretty much, you know, very, very, they've cleared 99% of their virus or more. And so this is just so critical to recognize that CT values, we, we count, you know, one might think CT value to 40 to 30 to 20, it's kind of the same from 40 to 30 and 30 to 20, but actually it's not, it's, it's a massive difference. And that's what happens when we, we try to think on logarithmic terms, most people in their brain think that it's a, a, a linear scale, but actually on the bottom here is what virus loads really look like for how people should be thinking about when is when is somebody most infectious. Great. And I must confess to the audience, I learned everything I know about this subject from Michael. I've read all of his <laughs> research papers time and time again. Oh, so we're running out of that. time. Yeah, no, it's true. You're fantastic. Um, I've got two really important questions I need to ask you. The first is about Omicron. So the original SARS-CoV-2 symptom onset was around four to six days after becoming infected. With the Omicron variant, we have experienced an acceleration of symptom onset to the first a few days of becoming infected. The rapid antigen tests were registering negative and not turning positive until several days after symptom onset for Omicron. As a result, many scientists have stated that rapid antigen tests do not work for the Omicron variant. What is your opinion of this new adaptation of the virus as it relates to rapid antigen tests? Now, this has been one of the uh, most difficult um, pieces for many people to understand. And that's because um, immunology and testing and virus kinetics, these are, these are a lot of different areas of science and medicine that most people don't bring together. 
people who understand testing don't usually think as much about immunology and people think about immunology might not think about viral kinetics. And actually understanding what's happening here takes synthesizing all three of these together. And so what we found with Omicron, it's, it's one of the most interesting aspects I think that has happened during this pandemic is that people are now starting to get symptomatic with Omicron really early. And you might get exposed today and you might become symptomatic tomorrow, which is really fast. If we think about two years ago with the original variant, we would say, oh, if you get exposed today, don't expect to see any symptoms for seven days. You know, don't even bother testing yourself for five days. But now we're seeing people get symptomatic at one day. And so people ask the question, well, is this just because Omicron is so much more aggressive and replicates so fast? Well, that's a little bit of it, but it's actually not the majority of it. The majority of it is what's happening is Omicron is really good at infecting people who have pre-existing immunity. So I've been vaccinated and I got Omicron. And that means I had a breakthrough infection. And what that means is that I actually had some immunity, clearly not enough to stop myself from getting an infection, but I had some immunity built up. So when I got exposed, my body started to recognize the virus early and it actually created symptoms, but the symptoms are different than they were two years ago. The early symptoms of Omicron are now things like a fever and congestion. And those are actually symptoms of your immune system turning on. Whereas two years ago, or even just seven months ago, the symptoms of COVID were loss of smell and difficulty breathing. And those were symptoms of the virus destroying your body. So people can have symptoms for very different reasons. And so what's happening with Omicron is that an individual gets infected and their immune system creates the symptoms. The next day, their, their body is like sending all kinds of red flags up saying, whoa, 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 you know, I, I recognize this virus because I've been vaccinated and boosted. So then people are becoming symptomatic before the virus even has a chance to grow up and be detectable in that you're still in that incubation phase of the virus when your body is turning on red flags and saying, hey, I think I'm infected. So we should actually use that as an early warning sign. But unfortunately, what's happened is people then use a test during that period of time and the test register is negative. And they say, what the heck? You know, I thought that tests are supposed to be positive when I'm symptomatic because people have equated symptoms with being infectious and having high virus load. But that's not true. In an era of Omicron and breakthrough infections, symptoms are oftentimes a reflection of your immune system turning on. And actually, I'd be almost more worried about somebody who doesn't have any symptoms who's infected. And because their, their immune system clearly is, might not be doing what it's supposed to be doing to really stop spread. So we actually saw evidence of this where, well, to, so to go back, what, what, what this is showing in the population now is people are using antigen tests on the first day of symptom onset or PCR tests, and they're getting a negative result. And then they're getting a negative result on day two and day three, they might be turning positive. And so they say, oh, these tests don't work anymore for Omicron. Well, that's actually not true. If we go back to the recommendation a year ago, it was don't even bother testing yourself for four to six days after you've been exposed. So the same thing holds still. The virus hasn't changed to make its replication much, much faster. It's that your body is just identifying the virus faster, sending up warning signals in the form of symptoms, trying to battle the virus early before it even has a chance to grow 
So for many people, they might be symptomatic and might never become antigen test positive because their body did what it was supposed to do and it actually beats the virus down. You still might detect it on PCR. For other people, they might turn positive two days after symptom onset because the virus had a chance to grow up and become infectious. And we actually have evidence. What we found, we looked at healthcare workers who were infected and getting tested and returning back to work at five days into isolation. And what we found was rather extraordinary. We found that healthcare workers who were recently boosted with a vaccine were the most likely to still be infectious at five days after symptom onset. So they were per CDC guidance, which I don't agree with. They were coming back to work at five days into after, isolation, after isolating for five days. And the boosted people were much more likely to still be infectious than the non-boosted people. So you could ask the question, well, that's weird. Are boosted people somehow not clearing the virus better? No, that's not the right way to look at it. What's actually happening is that boosted people have so much immune activity that their body recognizes the virus really fast. And so they start the isolation clock really early. So they were starting the isolation clock days before they even had a, a detectable viral load based on their symptom onset. So by the time they were leaving isolation at five days, they were at their peak virus load because their, because their immune system turned on within a day or two of becoming exposed. And then they didn't have their peak virus load until four days later. So we actually see sort of circumstantial evidence suggesting that in breakthrough infections, you become symptomatic even before the virus really has a chance to grow up. And that's the primary reason why so many people are still negative on their first two days. It's that they're still in that incubation window when two years ago, we knew that no test would turn positive in that period of time. And that still is the case today. It's just that the, the window of symptoms has shifted, not the window of viral replication. Right. So if you have Omicron, uh, I'm going to be very quickly because we're three minutes over. If you have Omicron um, and you are testing positive five days um, into your infection uh, and, and, and testing positive for 10 days, so um, uh, onwards, you're actually contagious. So even though your symptoms might have gone, it's not that the antigen, antigen test isn't working because I think you've showed really that antigen tests, good ones, validated ones, are 100% sensitive during the contagious period. So if your antigen test is registering, registering positive at day 10 to 15 to 20, you're actually contagious. That's right. You should always expect that. And, and that just takes a little bit of understanding how these rapid antigen tests work. If you have enough virus protein so that you can actually see a line on a rapid test, that means you have a lot of virus protein there. And the only way you have that kind of virus protein is if the virus is actively replicating and you're likely contagious. So my recommendation to anyone is if you're in isolation and you're thinking of leaving, especially if you're leaving early, test yourself before you leave. If you're positive, assume that you are infectious. And if you're positive, even if it's 13 days into your infection, into your symptoms, assume that you are still infectious. An antigen test does not stay positive if you're not likely infectious. And it's really important to know that. My grandfather, unfortunately, is in a, a senior living facility, he's 96. And a lot of people just got BA2 in his facility. This is just last week. And they hit the 10-day mark and they said, okay, 
nobody's symptom, nobody's infectious anymore after 10 days of symptom onset. Uh, you can you take off your mask, stop quarantining, stop isolating. And even if people are positive still, they were saying, don't worry about it. You're not infectious. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, we should not assume that just because 10 days is up that you're not infectious. If the test remains positive and it's a rapid antigen test, assume you are still infectious. Thank you so much for clarifying that because so many physicians are going around saying that the antigen tests are not working, ignore that positive result and re-expose yourself to society. And I know that your findings have been replicated in Japan and Taiwan. So I know it's not just your team that have, that have shown this. So we're out of time, unfortunately. I could talk to you for another hour. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the work you do. Um, I think I've said many a time you're brilliant and, and, and I think the audience can see why um, Dr. Minna's teachings have changed um, my whole perspective of medicine. Um, thank you for taking the time for being with us today and providing such valuable and worthwhile information. And thank you for sort of striving valiantly um, to help us to manage this pandemic properly. Well. Thank you so much. And I, I do hope that people have, have learned something and, uh, and certainly, you know, if people uh, want more information, my Twitter feed is full of it. I'm sure we can put that in the, in the, um, in the text here, but um, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I would highly recommend you follow Dr. Minna's Twitter feed. I do. <laughs> I'd like to emphasize a few points from this episode. Vaccination is still the number one option to reduce your risk from SARS-CoV-2 as you are at least four times more likely to become infected and 12 times more likely to die from COVID-19 if you are unvaccinated. Nevertheless, to live safely with COVID-19, we need more than just vaccination. A properly validated and approved rapid antigen test is nearly 100% sensitive to detecting the coronavirus during the contagious period which is when you can transmit or pass the virus on to others. Rapid antigen testing is one of several risk reduction measures that must be implemented in order to safely return to pre-pandemic life. It is critical that we do everything possible to reduce our chances of becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2, because even with one COVID infection, you are at risk of developing post-acute sequelae of COVID, which can manifest as damage to major organs in your body, such as your pancreas leading to diabetes, or you could develop long COVID. I would like to refer you to episode three for more information about this. Please listen to episode 8, part 2, Accounts of Rapid Testing in the Field, which shows proof of concept of Dr. Michael Minner's teachings today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.